So I was still in like my big old neck brace and I was still going through my rehab. Still didn't know what I could do in life. I honestly didn't know. I mean, my short-term memory was, was crap. And I remember the stories about Jimmy Wilson and then I remember seeing his funeral. And he was killed by um, some gangbangers. And so that was just kind of like, I'm gonna do it. I know I can do this. And it just means working, working harder, longer, and just not giving up and not saying, I can't do it. The best thing about the game, you know, is like you got to start a case from start to finish. Like you got to do the initial offense report to the arrest report to kicking in the door and getting the, and getting the bad guy. We got to do all of that. And we got to go wherever. You hear the shots ring out and, and like, you're not necessarily expecting that. I just remember blood. Now Norm's just laying in the, the breezeway. I don't know if Mario lays down around or something, so we're able to, to pull him. And it took all four of us to pull him out. I really am, I'm beside myself. Norm was like my Superman, right? Nothing. The ultimate forge was obviously the, the death of Norm, but just in running and doing the things that, that we did, every day you trusted an individual with your life. We were going after the, the worst of the worst, and we had to trust each and every one to do what they needed to do. Know that when you know the shit hit the fan that we were all there together. Even to this day, those are, those are my rider guys. I love those guys, like they're my brothers. The bond is so tight, I don't, I don't know that it could be broken. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. In 1938, Siegel and Schuster brought the world a character, an alien, that was sent to Earth to avoid destruction of his planet. This baby found his way to a small farm and was raised by incredibly generous people who had the hearts of servants. They directed a special child, raised him to be an incredible human being with a generous and giving heart, a servant's heart. However, this child was not human. He possessed incredible strength, unbelievable speed, impervious skin, indestructible bones. His name was Kal-El. The world knows him as Superman. A young girl was born in Council Bluff, Iowa. She graduated from Abraham Lincoln High, 1991. She grew up wanting to be Superman. She wanted to be Kal-El. She worked out to obtain strength. She sharpened her agility for basketball as she received a scholarship to play at Casper College in Wyoming. 
She had never had an injury until she reached college. Then she tore her ACL and MCL. She was devastated. Realized not only her body wasn't instructable, her bones were not impervious. But the road to continue her basketball career would be a different path. Events that occurred later in her life would also remind her that her bodies are finite. We can be broken. Our lives are fragile. However, her father reminded her that she not go to college to just play basketball, but more importantly, to gain an education. She did play one more year of basketball at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, but a lot like Clark Kent, she had a secret. She secretly began pursuing a career in law enforcement, as this profession is dedicated to protecting those who can't defend themselves, saving lives, service, just like a superhero would. It's my honor to welcome Dallas Deputy Chief Kara Zorel, a.k.a. Tina Schultz. Tina, thanks for coming on. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Welcome. Wow, Kara Zorel. <laughs> that says it all. Well, you ready to get into this? Yes, sir. Don't say sir to me. You're the chief. <laughs> it's that Midwest upbringing. Yeah. Well, I'm from Dallas. <laughs> I'm a Midwest girl. <laughs> all right. Born in the very wholesome Council Bluff. Tell me about that. How was that growing up there? You ever see that um, the movie Field of Dreams? You know, yeah. that one part where, is this heaven? And he says, no, it's Iowa. I mean, that's what, that's what Iowa is. Uh, I was raised with a very conservative Pentecostal family. It's very wholesome. Um, very. Very. I <laughs> couldn't listen to, legally, <laughs> with Andy Schultz's rules, legally listen to rock and roll until the eighth grade. And then I could listen listen to rock and roll until eight o'clock at night. And then after eight, we had to listen to uh, Christian music. And so actually my favorite artist is Amy Grant. <laughs> Still, I know. It's not bad. <laughs> well, I mean, I tell people that and I get that response, Misty. <laughs> but it, but it, was, it was great. I mean, the Midwest, uh, you know, when I moved down to Dallas, everyone's like, oh, you know, the Southern, southern hospitality, but it, it does not match what I think that the Midwest is. I mean, just very wholesome, very polite, people well because a lot of the people from down south they don't they don't know any better they've stayed they stay down they just it's just uh that's a just a generic label southern hospitality which i think has changed too over the years a little bit yeah <laughs> all right what drew you to basketball the competition the physicality or both i think it was a combination of everything uh when i grew up my the most of my cousins were about my age were males and so to pass time, I mean, there was a, a dirt yard with a basketball, you know, hoop up there, and we went out and played, and my cousins were rough, and so therefore I was rough. And so it was just getting in there and and banging, but also, like, working as a team. Did you watch Hoosiers? Oh, I did. Of course. <laughs> Who hasn't? <laughs> That's through, one of the movies yeah. that I've actually watched. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not Footloose, but Hoosiers, yes. Yeah. <laughs> How did you develop your skills, and what positions did you play? I developed my skills. I mean, again, a lot of this comes back to my my dad. Um, it wasn't really good enough to show up and, and play. Uh, my dad often had me on the driveway throwing me into the garage, throwing me down to the ground, just really working on, you know, getting me to that person that bounces back up um, and being able to take the, the physical aspect of what, what basketball was. My dad would make me go out into the driveway and – 
shoot 100 free throws a day. And then I'd have to do X amount of layups and just, just you know, work on the hook shot. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with his, you know, sky hook. You know, he's just, especially when I got to the point where I was playing a four and a five. And I didn't, I didn't have the height that most women at that four and five position had. I mean, I was 5'10", and that's pushing it. And so in order to really get in there and get into the paint and actually score – that would have been my bread and butter was somewhat of a hook shot because that would have been harder to block with those bigger gals that are six six one six two, and so it was actually my my dad just getting me out there and saying do. I wish I was five ten. Anyway, <laughs> you're close. Uh, yeah, yeah you're, you're you're really really yeah. close. All of you guys in this room are super close. Uh, that's, not <laughs> yeah. that's not very nice. No. <laughs> you keep mentioning your father. Can you can you describe your parents and relationship with them growing up? Well, so my, my dad is absolutely amazing. Uh, my dad has probably instilled a lot of the drive that I have. It's always been like that that mantra of be the best that you can be. And sitting in this position of being being a female, my dad always said, it's not enough to be the best female, but you have to be the best male. You need to be better than the, the males. And so that was always a, a huge drive for me. My relationship with my mother was a little bit different uh, because my mother is deaf. And so a lot of that, that relationship, um, and mom and dad, daughter relationships are a little bit tumultuous anyways. Uh, I don't think that my mom liked that I was such a tomboy. Um, it went kind of against where, where Phyllis thought, you know, how girls should act and act and be. And so I really just tended to, you know, go more towards my dad. If my dad was out there working on the car, even though I don't know a damn thing about cars, I was watching my dad do oil changes or things like that. It was just always like following my dad around like a little, little puppy dog. Like I was, you know, I was his little boy. You, you mentioned your mom is deaf. Um, there's a recent movie out. Have you seen it? I have, Coda, yes. <laughs> Award winner. Yes, And yes. so is that a realistic description or picture painted of what it's like to be in a, a that type of family? Oh, yes, yes. I, uh, you know, I often tell Mandy, you know, about like growing growing up with a deaf mom and trying to explain just why I'm unique in some of the things that I do and how I do things and just growing up with a a mom who that world is silent and so I sat and watched the movie with her and I think it just really put put into perspective of like what my childhood was like growing up with a deaf mom I mean on the weekends we went to the deaf club um, which as a young kid you love that because you, you know your your parents were up here who were deaf and so all the kids most of us were hearing kids I mean we could scream at the top of our lungs we could say things and do things and they would never be the wiser <laughs> which is why I'm a loud individual people are like gosh you're really loud when you walk into a room I'm like I had a deaf mom <laughs> but so I mean the movie the movie's a great movie if you haven't seen it you know do a little pitch for it but it, it really gives you a perspective of being a hearing child being being raised by by deaf parents because it is different you know, my, my mom going to basketball games or going to, you know, like at the church, we sang, you know, in choir and stuff. And my mom, my mom at that time, you know, couldn't appreciate those things. And what, what a sport standing there in, you know, cheering and smiling and being encouraging, even though she couldn't really take in what you were doing. Uh, basketball games were a little different because they're more entertainment, you know, in their game. So she could, you know, she could, you know, get involved. And every now and then you could hear my, my mom would scream or something, you know, and it's just like. Oh, what's that noise? You know, but it was, you know, I knew it was my mom cheering me on. That's awesome. Do you sign? Yes. How, how old were you when you started doing that? Uh, for me, I think my dad actually had to sit me down about six or seven. My older sister picked it up a lot quicker than I did. Like they had to make Tammy speak 
before she, you know, because she would sign. And then for me, like I signed, and I know you guys can't see, but it was like deaf people signed so fast to me, this was signing. And so my dad actually had to sit me down, I think it was six or seven, and I actually start teaching me signs. It's a great skill. It is. Yeah, I love it now. I mean, I, I grew up kind of like, I mean, there, there's the 70s and 80s, there was a sense of, you know, people like you walked into a restaurant or something and I'm signing with my mom and it's just like everybody's looking at you and then they're like you know they'd say hey can we help you and like my mom's deaf and they're like oh I'm sorry and so at some point like as a young kid and you know in the 80s you're just like you almost made you feel like like just shrunk you like why are you sorry that my mom's deaf Mm -hmm. and now I mean I'd have a different response for you today I won't say it here but I mean if my mom (laughs) or somebody said something that I was just like you know like so 70s or 80s you probably have um, a nice little story that you could tell people and how you were accosted at the store. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you get called by the department? Because uh, uh, we always need translators. I'm seeing that the emails come across. Do you still, do you? Every now and then I'll do that? it. I don't, um, I don't, not that it matters, but I don't get paid as a department because it's a little bit different because it is American Disability Act and there's different requirements that come versus a, you know, a Spanish speaker or somebody else of a different language. And so, um, I don't do it because I'm not certified. I wouldn't be able to sign for a suspect. But every yeah. now and then if I see somebody in the lobby, like a deaf person needing some help with a police report, I'll go down there. And then if I see something with kids, I'll go, I'll go down. But I don't, I don't do it on a regular basis. Tina, in communicating with your mother uh, through signing, what did that teach you about communication and dealing with just everybody in general? Well, with with mom and in the deaf community, it's, you're very you're very direct because you don't want things to get lost in the transmission of what you're trying to say. And so, for those that know me, whether they like it or not, um, I'm very very direct, and I don't really beat around the bush sometimes. And sometimes, the way I say it, you know, gets maybe taken taken the wrong way. But that's kind of what I how that has related to my communication with people is it's just very direct. It's very to the point. Um, sometimes it's not so pretty, but that's kind of where I, where I pick up that communication, having, having a deaf mom and I have deaf aunts and uncles. So I've grown up in that deaf community all my life. So I want to get into your love of Superman. <laughs> my obsession. Yeah, well, no. I mean, it goes past love, I think. Yeah. Okay. Your I mean, obsession but I'm talking Superman. to you. So I guess my, my love is, uh, not near where you are with your uh, tights. What <laughs> Yes. Oh, you noticed my tights I'm wearing. No, you I think you yes, yes, noticed knowing sexy. that. So sexy. <laughs> Do you have a life-size Superman in your house? No, I don't. Mandy would not let me have a <laughs> life-size Superman. So someone, someone, a partner would not normally allow something like <laughs> I that. I mean, to be in the house. <laughs> hey, mine is in storage right now. So. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I think it'd be yeah. actually really cool. I mean, you've seen my Batman, right? Yes, yes. I have. Joe. Yes, I have. <laughs> And I'm always like, oh, my gosh, that would be so cool. I wish I could have a Superman. <laughs> and yeah. thus far, I have failed in that endeavor. So <laughs> I'll send you an eBay link. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What you, age you have you... a room for me? Because I'll probably get kicked out. <laughs> the living room. Right? They'll, they'll have it right at the foot of the bed. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Set it there. Yeah. What age did you get into Superman? Oh, my God immediately right up i mean probably i mean probably when i could start what i remember probably earliest i mean is still probably toddler ages and i remember uh my grandmother and my grandma was from norway so my i mean a little bit of a a language thing but that's one thing you know 
she always knew that it was, you know, I wanted the, the bath towel with a, a baby pin stuck right there. And grandma and grandpa had stairs. And I remember just at the top of the stairs, like any kid, you know, because we're invincible. And we'd go and pretend like we were Superman and Batman. And we'd fly from those stairs and just go straight down. But, I mean, that had to have been five, six. I mean, it was it was really early on. And it's always been like the thing. Superman was like, out of all the superheroes, that was the one that was just way up here. Hmm. Hmm. He was so wholesome. Yeah, I mean, truth, that's, justice, that's, the American way. Yeah. I mean, that's he wasn't <laughs> sorry like Batman vigilante. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, no. <laughs> hey. Maybe. I don't know if Joe's going to ask this, or it's too soon. Who's the uh, best Superman? Ooh. Ooh, Henry Cavill. I think. Well, for me too. I mean, I like Christopher Reeve growing up with him, but then his body type he's kind of cartoonish big and muscular like what Superman's supposed to look like so I I do yeah definitely love Christopher Reeves we broke our neck around the same time okay I think his was I think after mine I think I broke my neck and then he broke his neck on. trying to be like you Mm -hmm. I mean that's that's kind of what I feel (laughs) yeah (laughs) we have a bond there but I I really love uh, Henry Cavill oh he's awesome yeah Yeah, he's a stud he he looks like freaking Superman he's supposed to be I mean like you know because I don't think Christopher Reeves really got into the the working out and you look at him and you look at you know his Instagram and his shirt off and he's just like these massive pecs and biceps is what Superman's supposed to look like I think reminds me of me I mean, yeah, you know, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the tights and everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm just going to jump. Yeah, right. um, yeah, but the body taps in the 80s, they weren't, they, they they didn't have, I mean, the there was like a handful, Arnold and, and Stallone, they stood out, but yeah. the body yeah. taps were not. The Hulk. Yeah, the Hulk. Yeah, oh, yeah, was, well, Lou yeah. Ferrigno, yeah. Yeah. He, well, he's, yeah. Well, he was Dev. Yes, yes. So it's on topic. It is. No, <laughs> no, I forgot about that. And it's Marvel, but okay. No, she loves Marvel, though. You know, and Tina and I. Had, oh, we, yeah, you, oh, yeah. We, I was we've like, got, whoa, wait a minute. We've gone to so many movies uh, yeah. of Marvel and DC and Star Wars and uh, Lord of the Hobbit, you know. Mm-hmm. So we, we've, we've seen quite a few movies. So what other characters did you get into? I know Wonder Woman, but... Loved Wonder Woman, um, but on the Marvel side, uh, Captain America was also oh, another wholesome. <laughs> Again, there's a, there's a theme here. There's yeah, a reoccurring <laughs> theme, right? <laughs> these these wholesome individuals, you know, that you know always make the right decision, and there's not really that you know, uh, do I do or do I not? It's just it's do. So, and then uh, recently, just because the new Marvel, uh, Captain Marvel, you know, and having that, oh, yeah, that female, Larson. you know, because I mean, growing up in the 70s, 80s, I mean, even the superheroes that were really pronounced were were male. You know, and so even though I liked Wonder Woman, that wasn't, you know, Wonder Woman was in her, her invisible jet floating around until the, you know, the recent movies came out. Probably wasn't on a lot of, a lot of gals radar. So yeah. Linda Carter though, she, yeah, she owned was, that role yeah, back then. No, but yeah. it wasn't, it was not the same. It was a different, yeah. different kind of TV series versus, you know, like the movies with. It was. Yeah. And they, and they've, the, <laughs> the female leads in, in superhero movies, they're mm-hmm. just leaps and bounds where they were. And even in the early 2000s. Oh yeah, I mean so. Gal Gadot knocked it out. Oh yeah, know? and all those Amazonians that in the movie—I mean, which were half those gals were CrossFit gals, which you know, <laughs> just watch that part over and over. I again, didn't, and you're yeah, like, I, I didn't have a problem you know? with that. I need to go to the gym. Yeah, you. Probably- <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at. It, I'm like, I know, I just need to go to the gym and like live there for eight hours a day because like, how did they get biceps and quads like that? It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, even even the mom looked great in uh, Robin Wright. Yeah, mm-hmm. she looked amazing in it. Mm-hmm. Like Clark Kent kept a secret identity right and you go into college and you had a secret and you change majors 
How did that? How did that go over? With, with my parents? Yes. <laughs> well, I was so I was a biology major, and I honestly I went to college to play basketball. Like that was the only reason to play basketball, and actually to get away from my parents. Right. Um, those are the two things. You know, the academic part came. It's a byproduct. Yeah. I mean, just... it was it was there just because I had to be there. I mean, I showed up for class because I had to I had to go, and so um, going into I think the end of my junior or senior year, the way my grades were going, I was just like, what am I going to do with this? And so, and I'd always kind of wanted to be a law enforcement officer, but it was just one of those things that mom just kind of deterred you from just because it wasn't really the role of a gal. Right. And so I was just like, nuts to it. I'm, I'm of age. I can make my own decisions now in life. And so I went down to the, uh, the counselor's office and, you know, said I wanted to change change my degree, and I changed my degree to criminal justice. And I didn't tell my parents. And my mom, I mean, shame on her for asking that question. She's like, when are you going to graduate? And I'm like, hmm, well, about that, <laughs> you know, and I, I had other classes that I had to take now. And so I was like, I think it's going to be another near year. And she didn't understand why, you know. She's like, you're going to, you're going to class. And I'm like, yeah, but I changed my degree, and I want to be a police officer. And, I mean, you would have thought that, you know, the world was just going to implode. She was not happy about that decision. <laughs> and then moving forward in my, into my, my, you know, car crash, when I was in the hospital, my mom's like, you can't be a police officer now. <laughs> and, you know, because my body was completely broke. Uh, so I think to the certain extent, not to say, I mean, was kind of happy that she didn't think I could actually pursue that career, you know, because my injuries, she thought my injuries were going to, to limit me. I mean, my dad didn't care. My dad supported me, okay. you know, all the time, whether he thought it was dumb or not. It was always just go be the best you can be. If that's what you want to do, excel in what you do. She's like, what does this constitutional law have to do with biology? <laughs> what is this class? <laughs> They're trying to like, explain yeah. it. I'm like, eh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> the hell is this? So you play basketball and you have an injury. Can you describe that? I mentioned you tore your ACL and MCL. When that happened, you had no injuries up till to that point other than a bum shoulder yeah so that was my first major uh major injury where that required surgery and again my world was i didn't know what i was going to do i meant i you know i was in wyoming at the time and so my parents were in iowa and i remember calling my dad that night just like the world again the world's imploding my life is done i don't know what i'm going to do i'm just going to be a pile of poo on the ground right and my dad was just like you know, he called me teen. He's like, teen. He's just like, that's not why you went. He's like, now maybe you can focus on school. Because, <laughs> I, again, I sucked. You're grounded. So. And it just, and that wasn't enough. Like, I mean, I was mad at my dad. You know, I'm just like, why aren't you, like, upset with me? You know, like, here I was going to be this, you know, amazing athlete and do all great things in the, in the name of basketball. Now that's done. And my dad kept pushing me, you know. Like, I would – I mean, there was a point, like, I mean, I was like in a totally depressed state. Like I wouldn't even go travel with the team. I just laid in my bed in the dorm room, you know, oh, woe is me. I can't get up to classes up the hill, you know, because didn't have a car at the time. And, you know, Casper, it's Wyoming, so there's mountains. And, you know, one of the one of the classes I had to go to was like, I think the, the hill was like a quarter or half mile. And then to try to truck up there with crutches. And so I was like, I can't even get to class. And I mean, I laid in bed and cried and cried. And I think just the messaging from my dad was just like, get up and go, you know, this is stupid. This is basketball. I mean, like, that's not what your life is going to be. And at some point I, I guess I got up. 
and went to, went to school. And then um, my coach at that time was really, really great because he knew how much I wanted to continue playing basketball. And, I mean, he reached out to, you know, everybody that he knew just trying to figure out, you know, like, could we do this? Could we do this? And there are a lot of schools that, you know, they're hesitant with any kind of injury. And he even offered for me to come back, you know, going back into a third year to just practice with them and get myself rebuilt um, and then see if somebody would then, then pick me up from there. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really want to go back to Wyoming, you know, like, again, I was just like, it was, I just didn't want to be there anymore. And so he reached out to, um, Sherry, who is the the head coach at UNO and sent her a couple of my tapes and let me walk on from there. I didn't have to try out like you normally would. And then the hopes was earning a scholarship afterwards. How fully recovered was your knee when you got up there? Uh, that was it. My knee was a tough recovery. It, it wasn't, but I think a lot of it, when I say it wasn't, is the mental aspect of it, too. I don't know. You've torn your ACL. And, you know, for the first six, six, eight months, you're in this big, huge brace. And that brace, like for me, gave comfort. Like if I could cut, yeah. you know, I'd have that brace, whether, whether it's true or not, that brace would be there to, like, protect me in those cuts. And so when that brace came off, for me, it took, it took a lot to get over that, that mental part because, like, never having a surgery, being 20, you know, thinking – I'm not going to go through this again. I was really hesitant, but again, it's a, it's a mental game that you have to work, work and then build that confidence. And I don't know how long it took, you know, I don't know, get in the weight room and, and doing the things that you need to do to, to, to strengthen your body. What scares the hell out of you? I mean, I've, I've had two knee surgeries. I tore my patellar and the first time getting out and, and chasing after somebody, I was scared mm-hmm. to death, you know, yeah. cause I didn't, I didn't want to go through that wearing that thigh high brace again and all that all that, recovery physical therapy mm-hmm. and and back when you tore your ac and mcl it was pretty devastating now acl and mcl with science it's that's a very common injury that people bounce back you know at the pro levels and they oh, yeah. as good as when they went out yeah look at my scars and my little sister had yeah. acl surgery i think two years after i did you look at her scar and you look at my scar and i mean i got a big old scar on the front of my knee and the side and she's got these little holes mm-hmm. So when you went to, uh, you decided you wanted to go into law enforcement, pursue criminal justice. Why did you decide? Why did you decide that? Go from biology to criminal justice. You got you got grounded from injuries, and you had to focus more on your studies. But did, at that point, did you think you wanted to become an officer? That that had been with me throughout probably my entire life, and this will be the nerdy, really nerdy side of me. And I think Joe, you'll be able to appreciate this. Is like wearing that utility belt, you know, being, <laughs> being that, that savior, right. That hero. Um, and it's always been something in me to, to be, to be like Superman or whatever, to, to get in there and, and be the protector of people that can't, can't protect themselves. And not at that time, I mean, like I said, it was solely like looking at Superman, but what that translated to was going into law enforcement and being, being the person, the overseer, the one that helps the people that can't help themselves. It was a symbol. Right, that, that that's what that's what an officer is, and is a symbol, a symbol, of, hope. A symbol of hope. Well, that's Superman's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for those that you don't know, the, the Batman symbol means that you're going to get your ass whipped. When you, show, when <laughs> yeah. you, you see that, you see the bat sign. Yeah, oh, there it is. There you are, Randy. <laughs> so on June third, nineteen ninety five, you took a test, right? Mm-hmm. Can you describe what you did? Yeah, it was the uh, the physical fitness test for the Council Bus Police Department. And then if you pass the physical fitness test, which obviously I did, because right. at that time, I mean, I worked out with a bodybuilder, and I, I, 
I was really like focused on getting in there and just kind of being that badass female. And so past the physical fitness, then you jump over and you take the, the written test. Um, and then you wait. And at that time, um, like it's, it's smaller agencies. And so you had like three openings and there'd be like 150 people, you know, applying for those three openings. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a shoe in, like you actually had to be Excel and, you know, be on the top to, to get those positions. And at that time they didn't really care whether you were a male or female, right? It was like, I want the, the top three. June 4th came around, right? Mm -hmm. Right after you took that test. Can you describe that incident and, and, and how that changed your life? Oh, yeah. So I was a lifeguard. Um, and so the following day, it was rainy, so the pool closed early. So I was going to go over to Omaha with, with my friends. And I think, I'm, I think I'm coming off of 480, and not that anybody will know these roads, but this is what I remember. And I'm traveling down Dodge Street, and I'm going through a green light. And I think at 15th or 16th, it's an it's a exit ramp off the interstate. Um, and this, this young kid... Uh, ran the red light and so as I was crossing and at that time I had a two-door Nissan Sentra and so he t-boned me on the on the passenger side and he was going so fast he threw me across uh, two lanes and then I hit a pole head-on and the impact of the pole head-on from getting pushed this way brought the engine almost into into the, the car and at that time I mean I do now but I didn't didn't wear my seatbelt um, and so it actually threw me over into into the passenger side and what I remember about that is I, I remember the paramedics coming and saying hey you know don't move you've been in a serious car injury and so I kind of opened my eyes and I can just see the blood all over the the dash and then next thing you know I don't remember anything and then I remember being in the ICU you know cold room and I remember this big huge bright light and then cutting my swimsuit off of me <laughs> is what mm -hmm. I remember and then from there I I don't remember anything until hours after and you know i talk i talked to dad because i mean geez for a parent to sit there for three or four hours wondering if your your kid's gonna die i mean you guys are parents i mean that i can't imagine what my parents went through um i remember coming back into uh, the ic room icu room and i was in um a kinetic bed so uh, for those like it rotates so seven seconds comes here seven seconds and then i had those um I don't know, leg warmers or something that kept, kept your, I guess, I don't know what they did to my legs, but just kept it so the circulation, circulation would go. Yeah. And then um, I had, so I had this metal traction. It's a halo, um, right? Like kind of like, like yeah. a halo, but okay. it was just a, a round ring with four screws tied, or screwed into my head. And then I don't know how big the, the weights were, but I had to, it had to keep my neck in, neck in place. And so that's all going on and rotating and, I was on a lot of morphine. Um, I do remember that because my dad said my behavior was poor. Hmm. Um, I blame it on the morphine. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And then, and then at that time, I don't, I don't know if it was until the um, the following day uh, or when I, or when they actually told me. But I actually, from my left, my left side was paralyzed, so I had no no movement. Even now, like my dexterity in my left hand compared to this is from the paralysis. Um, so I mean, I'm 21. I mean, now my life is flipping over. Don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm ever going. Really, I didn't know what that meant for walking. I didn't know. I didn't know what that meant for the rest of my life. Um, and like I said, at some point, mom was just like, "You can't be a cop now." <laughs> and I, you know, and, no, that's and, that dream's gone now. Right. Yeah, and and it, for for a second, I mean, it it was. Yes. I mean, I didn't. 
I didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, and then, I, I mean, I just, did, I didn't know. I mean, there was a lot of things that were in the unknown during that, probably that, that first week. Well, being told you're probably going to be paralyzed at any age is, yeah. is terrifying. But as a 21 year old, you know, that impact on your life, you know, just, I can't imagine that feeling. No, I mean, yeah, I don't. The one thing I remember about that, and it'll be another Andy Schultz story, is uh, I think my dad just kind of gets tired of some of my pissy attitudes when, when life, you know, throws you a zinger and it hits mm-hmm. you right in the eyeball, you know, laying down and being like, oh, cry, look at me, help me. And at one point, it was before I had to, it was before the surgery, my dad kicked all my friends out. And again, he sits me there like I wouldn't eat, I wouldn't do anything. And the doctor actually told my dad, he's like, she's got to change her attitude or she's not going to get better. Um, and so my dad kicks everybody out. And again, serious conversation team. He's like, I don't know what you're doing. He's like, but only you can get to a point where you can make yourself better. I said to sit there and, you know, and wallow and, oh, woe is me, isn't going to get you anywhere. And uh, I come from a very, very strong Christian family. And so prayer warriors left and right. And so the prayers, but plus my dad, I mean, my dad came there every morning before breakfast, which was annoying at that time to make sure I ate. And he had to go to work and, you know, work was really, really good with him. He'd come at lunchtime to make sure I ate. And then he'd come at dinner time because if he wasn't there, I wouldn't eat. I would just sit there and, and pout. And so he made sure that I did everything I was supposed to and then and then some. Um, and I, without without my dad, I mean, and really that, that push and just the, the – at that time, I thought they were really, really mean reality checks, but they were reality checks that were needed. Yeah, he pushed you to, to heal and recover. Oh, get out of my headspace. I mean, we all get in this headspace and it's woe is me and, you know, my world is crumbling and, you know, and it's the reality is get out of that and, you know, I think, long, pull, pull your big girl pants on and <laughs> start doing it. How long was your recovery process? Oof. Uh, over, over a year. It was, I mean, the recovery itself was, I mean, I, I was very fortunate again. I come from a, a family of prayer warriors. Um, normally with an injury, so I broke, and I could be off. I broke like C5 and 6, or so I have 5, 6, and 7 fused together. I always forget which ones uh, were, were broke. But normally in those kinds of injuries, because of the paralysis too, you have to go to an in-house uh, rehab place and then kind of work on the walking and doing, because I you know, had to work on the grip and went to occupational therapy and all that. And I told my dad, and I mean, I'm glad my dad listened to me. I told my dad, I was like, I don't want to go. I want to go home. I don't want to go. And my dad kind of hem-hawed because my dad was going to be, my dad would be my caretaker. My mom wouldn't have been strong enough to do the things like lift me up, help me walk, you know, like wash my hair and those kinds of things. And so my dad had to actually agree with me. But I think after he, after he yelled at me, I think he saw the determination that I promise I'll do the things that I'm supposed to do and then, then some. Um, and I went home instead of going to an in-house, in-house rehab place. Your, your father's, Sounds incredible as far as forcing you to recover, demanding you recover, right? <laughs> uh, he is an amazing man. And I think we take for granted how well our parents know us. Oh, yeah. You know, because I have the same arguments with my kid, you know, like, hey, I know you better than anyone. You think you know what's going on. And mm-hmm. it seems like I, I'm i getting some positive reinforcements from stuff. You're telling me how your dad's with you because I'm, I'm not going to say I'm like him, but I try to do certain things with my kid and... I'm glad I know I'm on the right track because it seems like he's done a wonderful job with you. So that's. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, dad. Can you tell us about Jimmy Wilson and 
the impact he had on your recovery? So Jimmy Wilson was the Omaha police officer that was uh, killed in the line of duty. Uh, I think it was August or September of the year I was I was injured. And so I was still in like my big old neck brace and I was still going through um, my my rehab. Still didn't know what I could do in life. I honestly didn't know. I mean, my short-term memory was was crap. I had to, you know, I had to carry a book to write things down. So, you know, I'd remember still working on, on the strength and getting everything back. And I remember sitting there in the living room and, you know, seeing, seeing the, uh, the stories about Jimmy Wilson. Then I remember seeing his funeral. Um, and it was at the Catholic church by, uh, Creighton university and just the, just the magnitude of people that came in and he was killed by, um, some gangbangers, um, and so that was just kind of like, I'm going to do it, you know. And then I kind of like put me back on like, I know I can do this. And it just means working, working harder, longer, and just and not giving up and not saying I can't do it. And that kind of just, that pushed me just seeing that because like, you know, so, you know, any police funeral, you know, you cry, but there was something also that gave me the chills and motivated me to be like, I know my body's broken, but I can, I can fix it because I want to. I want to be somebody like Jimmy Wilson. Was it the brotherhood or the unity of the funeral? What? You know, I think it was it was the combination. But I remember, um, I believe it was his sister, and like the the phrase that that I recall is, you know, she said, "He touched us. He touched me last, or he touched us last." And it was that to me. It was like, gosh, somebody like that. Even though the tragedy that he was killed line of duty, like the impact that each and every one of us who wear this badge can have on people. And like, they don't know me. I don't know. I mean, I've never met the Wilson family, but that sister statement had an impact. And then like, for me, I want to have whatever that looks like. And I think everybody in this room is like, you want to, you want to impact those in a, in a positive way. So you heal up and you're still dedicated to be a, being a police officer and a protector. Where, where did you go from there? Uh, once I was finally cleared, like I said, I think the car crash was in 95, I think finally 97, uh, was when I got my release. And so I got back on to working out and doing the things I needed to and council plus police department had, had another opening. And so I went through the whole uh, process again and was selected to go to the academy. Okay. When you got out there on the, uh, the streets, how was that finally getting out there? Was it what you expected it to be? Um, you had to get through a lot yeah. to get there. You know, I, th- I think it, I think it was a, a mix. Um, you know, the the academy was like in Iowa. It's a state academy, so you live there for three months, and so you're, you know, so you're not like, yeah, I know. So you're with everybody in the state, you know, and doing those things. I mean, you had, you know, revelry in the morning where we had inspection. You had to make your bed a certain way. You know, you had to, you know, you only got to go out twice a week, and you had to sign in and out. So it was very very rigid. So I'm thinking I'm going to go in, you know. With, council bus and all that and it's going to be like you know make sure you're there at eight o'clock you're on the car at 805 i mean everything was just so military at the first academy and so my first trainer was uh was ron zika um and he's retired since then he's he's still back in council bus i believe but just the way he was as an fto i mean it is super cool super relaxed and you know it was just like i'm going to teach you i'm going to show you um took me to calls that he knew i needed to go to uh Probably got me into some fights, which wasn't hard to do, right? right. I had a little bit of a temper back then, hmm. um, you know. And so it was, it was fun. And I think, again, as anybody in this room can say, I was just like, shoot, we got paid for this. 
I mean, like we got we got a check, and somebody right. said thank you for your service. Right. I would have done it for free. <laughs> Maybe not now, but yeah. back right. then I would have done it for free, right? Right. What What was the size of that department? Uh, 116, 120. Okay. So a small department. Okay. On October twenty fourth, nineteen ninety eight, you experienced more tragedy. Can you describe what happened then? Uh, yeah, actually, that one that one's pretty clear. Uh, that was when uh, my Aunt Linda was killed in a car crash. And um, and so it was on a county side, but it, if it would have been a quarter mile in, it would have been, it would have been my call because that, that was in my district. Um, but with that, I remember right before uh, Sergeant Dave Yop was my sergeant at that time, and we had we just gotten in a pretty good fight. And so, I'm, you know, I'm excited. I'm in there with the, with the fellows getting, getting my licks in, and he pulls me to the side, and I'm like, what? You know, I'm going to get in trouble. And he just, he told me, he's just like, oh, you need to get to the hospital. Your, your aunt's been in a bad car crash. And so I couldn't get a hold of my parents. Of course I couldn't, you know, mom can't hear. So, you know, knocked on the door. Dad didn't, dad didn't wake up. And so, um, I ran home and, uh, my best friend, I got a hold of my best friend, Nicole. Nicole took me to University of Nebraska Medical Center and none of my family's there yet. So I'm, I'm still in uniform and, you know, I'm trying to, again, being in uniform, trying to maintain my composure. And I see, um, at that time it was the, um, where the crash happened was Pottawatomie County. So the Pottawatomie County deputies would work it. And I saw the deputy and he asked, he said something about, is that my aunt? And I said, I think so. And he's just like, you picked a tough, tough, tough occupation kid. And I mean, I, like at that time, you know, I was just like, what the, you know, like, where's my aunt? And I'm like, what do you mean it's tough? I mean, this has nothing to do with my occupation. This is my aunt. Um, and then he took me to the room because I had to, um, I had to actually ID my aunt and say, yeah, that's, that's Linda. Um, and then from there, it was just, didn't know what to do. And I, I felt like it took eternity for anybody to, in the family to, to come. And then still being in uniform, everybody looked to me like, what's the, what do we need to do? Who do we need to call? And I didn't, I didn't have time to, at that point, kind of grieve. I mean, I, I sat there with my, with my family probably for, for 12 hours in uniform. And the hospital staff came to me, you know, and then I'm having to tell, you know, my mom and my aunts and uncles kind of what's going on. And it was just a that, – that part was rough. And, and for me, when it was finally all said and done after we, we buried, buried my aunt. So that was tragedy I didn't know how to deal with, didn't have a chance to really, you know, I guess – express what I would I mean and I actually I worked nights at that time I'd come home grab myself a six-pack 12-pack I drink I go to bed wake up repeat and that at that time was the only way I really knew how to deal with that tragedy I didn't I mean nobody we didn't talk about stuff like that especially even in the 90s you know like you're just supposed to everybody expects you to pick up and and move on and I felt like everybody else in the family was doing the same thing and because we didn't talk about it. Like, nobody, like, we didn't talk and say, how are you feeling? What are you doing? I mean, we just didn't. And so, you know, I know my sisters had a really, really hard time. Like, our Aunt Linda was, like, our second mom. And so we each dealt with it in the way that we knew how. And, and at that time, my way was having a couple beers. And it was actually one of my friends was like, I don't know what you're doing. You know, and again, somebody slapping, slapping reality, you know, and you know, wake up. And at that, at that point in my life, I still couldn't get my own reality checks and make myself do things. And I wallowed, I wallowed in stuff a lot in my twenties. You're very lucky to have certain people though, like that to yeah. slap you for a reality mm -hmm. check, right? Mm -hmm. Your father. Oh, absolutely. Really. 
how did that change your perspective on life and, and policing? Well, I think that, I mean, you often think that life is forever, you know, and as you said earlier, I mean, it's not, we're all breakable. Uh, life isn't forever and seeing how frail life is and really like, I mean, not to go really into uh, my Aunt Linda, but my Aunt Linda liked to drink. And she would show up at my, you know, our little house parties all, with all my girlfriends and stuff, and she would drink with, with us. And Aunt Linda was, was super cool. And probably knowing she drank too much, um, but never addressing it. And again, you know, I don't think I would sit here now and not address I mean, people in my life have addressed things and, you know, challenged me. And my aunt could probably still be here today if one of us stepped up and said, you need to stop drinking. But is it one of those things that, that back then, because you're dealing with your own stuff, did you did anybody actually really noticed, notice her, her, her even having a problem? Because I don't think that most people just don't know. They're so busy in their own life. They don't really stop. I think we did. Slow, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we did. I mean, it was was excited when I turned 21 to be able to go drink with Aunt Linda, yeah. you know. Um, so I don't I don't know that anybody in my family could say that we didn't know. Right. We just didn't address it. Maybe we didn't know how bad. We just knew that she drank. Well, we have a lot. I mean, this profession has uh, – there's a lot of uh, officers and, and firefighters and any military that they cope in the same manner, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's just – we don't talk about it. We push it to the side. We put it on the back burner, and we get more stuff set in on the front burners, and that back burner gets pushed off to the totally off the stove. Oh yeah, and that's you know we all talk about that's what needs to change is you know it's not it's not weak to have those conversations, and though they're uncomfortable, that's a sign of strength to be able to step outside of what your normal comfort zone is, and and talk about things and figure out how to get through it, and realize that you're not alone in what you do. Everybody's experienced some kind of tragedy, right? And we all can, through whatever our experiences were, give somebody something to to help them get through. And people aren't your people aren't alone. No, they're not. That's why one big reasons why we're doing this. And your story is going to touch somebody. I promise. All right, you're in a small town. You're dealing with tragedy, personally and with your aunt injury, and going through that. Why did you decide to come to Dallas, Texas? <laughs> Oh, I'm a huge Cowboys fan. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, I'm, almost, I'm almost embarrassed. <laughs> you know, Tina, that's why I wanted to come to Dallas, because this was the mid-90s, and the Cowboys, it was after the Super Bowls. Yes. I mean, These we were, Dallas cops were arresting. I'm like, man, what are they doing arresting those guys? I need to go up yeah, there and go. I mean, I'd been a fan since the late 70s. Uh, you know, they were they were America's team. You know, my dad at that time liked the Cowboys, and because my dad did, I did, and then I am loyal to a fault, and I am still to this day a Dallas Cowboy fan, and I love Troy Aikman. Good. Uh, I just yeah. bought his beer last week. So I want to try that. It's really good. It's no, I do really want to try that. Um, but yeah, and so I I wanted to go to a big city, and again, infinite wisdom of Andy Schultz is my dad was always he's just like, you know, Council Plus was a great department, but being so small, so small, you're limited into where you can go. And my dad had mentioned, like, you know, going to a bigger department to be able to experience more things in law enforcement. And I think in my dad's mind, he thought maybe Omaha or, like, Kansas City. Um, I don't know if he thought Chicago at that th- time. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think he could have got on Chicago Police Department at that time because I think it was more like who you knew. Um, 
and the idea of going to a big city was fun. When I go on, on trips and stuff, I like the big city. But I used to come down here for football games once a year. And still not realizing that Dallas Cowboys were in Irving at that time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm coming to Washington. I'm thinking I'm in Dallas, right? <laughs> uh, I'm so smart. <laughs> but that's, I mean, street. like, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> but that's how, that's how I picked really? the city of Dallas was, you know, I thought, oh, I'll be a season ticket holder. I'm going to get a license plate that has Dallas Cowboys. I'm going to get a Dallas Cowboy credit card. Because some of these things I could have done back in Council of Sile, right? Again. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's honestly how I did not know a, I, I, you know, I did know Nancy, but like, I didn't know a soul um, coming here. Like, I moved at 29, had no clue where to go. My friends were like, don't live in Dallas. Yeah. Don't live in Dallas. They're still saying they're like, that. Yeah. And they're like, where? And so like, I got a place like in Plano. It took me freaking an hour to get the academy. You know, at that time I had a, a Sharpay and he had separation anxiety. And so I was oh. dealing like he would tear the apartment up, you know. And so it was just, and I, there were points I'm like, why in the world? You know, then I look at my paychecks after doing five years back home. My paychecks here were, were $900 or something stupid, right? You know, I'm like, like, why I am, am I here? I am going to have season tickets now. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. I'm never going to be a and season ticket yeah. holder. You know, but that's, I mean, that, that's a sad story of how... <laughs> Sad, depending on who you are. If you're a Cowboys fan, you're I'm like, that's cow- so fantastic. <laughs> did you, you like, know, but did you like that picture of Stallback I had? I have a couple, Joe, and I have yeah. this autograph, too, on a football, so, uh-huh. but I can still hold that football All for right. you. <laughs> so when you got to the academy, how did you think it was? Right? I mean, what did you expect, and then what was the reality of the academy for you? Compared, so, compared to Iowa. Yeah. So, I mean, without speaking ill of the, the academy um, – the academy here, like I was like eight months or whatever. Yeah, I think it was eight months. Yeah. It was way too long, you know, but it was very, compared to what I had, it was very, very relaxed. Even though back then where I was like, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and all that. And you, you know, walking down the hall. I mean, mm. the Iowa Academy was very, I mean, like we did PT and DT every day. Your PT consisted, I mean, like you were running seven miles or our DT, like we were, we were in there. I mean, you're learning your stuff, but you're, you're fighting and stuff. And, but you're also, you're eating breakfast with these guys. You're eating lunch with these guys and you're eating dinner and you're hanging out. So like the camaraderie that I had at the Iowa Academy was not really the same, even though we spent eight months with each other, like we all went home and we all had on the weekends, you know, like we all had our own life and, and stuff. And, so two different two different worlds. I mean, it's really really hard to compare, uh, you know, those two. But Dallas was super long academy. What, what uh, when did you start the academy? What what month? Uh, September thirteenth of two thousand two. September thirteenth. Mm. My birthday. I moved That's here. My sep- birthday. Oh, I moved here yeah. September eleventh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Your uh, birthday's in September. Yeah, September thirteenth. Hmm. Did you have any friends that you you got in academy and your, some of your classmates that you still have today? I, I talked to some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I mean, I, I, I keep in touch with a few of them, but like, as for folks that we still hang out with and stuff, uh, no. Okay. Yeah. The only reason I talk to Randy is because I have to, because he's, <laughs> he works here. So I have to talk to him. He knows I love him. Who else uh, from your class went to Northeast? Do you remember? Uh, Jonesy Van. Okay. And, uh, was it Emmett Jack? No, Emmett Jackson. He went to Central first. I uh, Jonesy's the only one I remember, okay. like right off, because we both went to the same. There's probably a few of us, but I honestly gotcha. That's gonna be my next question. Memory. Yeah, please. Northeast. You got the north Northeast. How was that? Going from small town to hit Northeast Dallas. 
I mean, Northeast was bigger than my entire city of Dow- yeah. or Council Bluffs. Um, it was it was different. I mean, with anything in law enforcement, it's it, the calls are the same, right? Um, so doing that, but like he, here in Dallas, like we didn't. I mean, there's obviously dope in Council Bluffs, but we didn't. I didn't know anything about it. So coming to Northeast, when I didn't have to be the park police with with Jana, right? I would jump in with somebody and and learn about you know the the dope in the in the twenties and the was the forties and fifties up at Forest Hill, and so that that part was eye opening because I mean there was a lot to do, you know. And then I mean like whatever your your niche was or whatever you wanted to you know to learn like that provided you an opportunity versus back home it was just really answer some calls you know you did your traffic because that's what we all did you know when especially in the winter time when there weren't any calls because it's too cold to come outside um so the opportunities were were huge at northeast the everything's bigger than texas right <laughs> right in <laughs> <laughs> northeast has no shortage of violent crime or drugs and gangs what time what type of work did you gravitate to over there so initially with my trainer and stuff like that i was in the 20s you remember rob o'connor and those guys so that part was was really fun for me and it was it was chasing the dope but then when i got off of training and i got to third watch uh steve shaw at that time put me put me in with janet brewster and so i worked the police remember hector Rowe used to always tease me when we came to disruption that all i did was write fishing tickets um but when when Jenna was off, I would try to like get with somebody that worked in the fifties or the twenties that actually went out and, and chase you know chase the bad guys and figured out what the dope was and, and do things like that. And so that I liked it, you know, kind of gravitated towards that. But with the way I was assigned, I didn't really get to do it. So uh, any opportunity I had, I wanted to learn how to do it. And then I actually got the opportunity to go to Disruption, where I was actually with Randy. Well, and you know, guys. that's I'm glad you segued into that because I, I think. I went to Northeast in 2003, and then 2005, I think, is when we went to Disruption, mm-hmm. when that started. And it was interesting to see the, the different people they poured, pulled from all the stations. And I knew a bunch of people from Southwest, a little be- few people from Southeast, and, you know, Webb and I went over there. But we also saw other people that were coming from Northeast with us, and I didn't know anything about you. I remember seeing you on training, mm-hmm. but I had no clue. And yeah, you teased me about being uh, park police and so running we, fishing you know, tickets, Randy. Yeah. with us too from Southwest. So he, he's talking over me, so he didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, I heard you. <laughs> Do you remember you wrote fishing tickets? And I'm like, yeah. But it was one Piss of those. Off. It was one of those things when you you and kind of like what you went through with SWAT. You get in there, you size up everybody. Like, okay, what kind of work are we going to do? Who can we trust working with? And I'll say this: you, I don't know if you knew that, but you made your mark pretty quickly. I think just because you didn't, I think you got lucky that you were in the right squad yeah. with us. I agree. Um, not to stroke my own ego or anything, but I think you got lucky because we knew what we were doing and you you working with Hector and then, you know, riding with Webb and I every now and mm-hmm. we were able to do good stuff and get you exposed. And I thought you excelled really well. And I'm going to tell a story about West Dallas when <laughs> Tina's tall, she kicked the door and she kicked around. Go ahead and say his name. <laughs> He was a lieutenant. No, he was a sergeant. He was, a sergeant. he was our sergeant at the time. And it, man, I wish we would have had body cameras because it was just so funny, Joe. Her, her seeing her long ass leg going past <laughs> John and that door getting kicked in. And he just sta- I don't. What think happened? He, yeah. I, don't, I don't think he knew what the hell was happening because he looked around and it was it was awesome. You know, you can give your perspective on that. No, it, it, I wasn't up there. I just watched from the side when, when that happened. It was it was awesome. 
yeah, you guys teased him, and so I got the the brunt of it, you know. I was like on the like naughty list for some reason, and I'm just like, yeah, I did that. Those corn-fed legs. For our listeners out there, describe what disruption was, because some people may not know, and then mm-hmm. how many officers, when you guys started that group. So we were Kunkel's kids, mm-hmm. right? And uh, there was 100 officers. There were 50 on days, and... Uh, 50, 50 on an evening squad. And our particular squad, we were assigned to actually the the drug complaints. Um, and so knock and talks. Yeah, our knock and talks is when we could do that. And so for us, I mean, everybody else still kind of went to the tag areas and did their thing. But our, our specialty was like we had addresses that needed follow-up, and we knew that, you know, the narcotics was being sold there. And, I mean, we'd take over houses. And, I mean, it, it, was, it was fun. It was so much dope. And I still remember Jonesboro and the 15 kilos and <laughs> – well, that was a mess. Yeah. You guys worked the entire city, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun just getting to go. Everywhere. I'm, I'm sure for you, you know, I did some time at Southwest, but for you getting to see just different parts of the city, you, you know, and back then when we'd work South Dallas, I could never understand why you guys were so miserable. But then seeing, working third watch and into the evenings in South Dallas, I can't imagine the, the mental health that was down there because it, it was it just sucked the life out of me just for the couple of nights a week that we might have been in that area because it was awful. Yeah, Chris White, uh, the U.S. Marshal, Chris White, shout out. He he gave a good description of it. it says basically like it was like working in an occupied territory. <laughs> it really South Dallas at certain parts of the uh, times of the year and certain pockets over there in South Dallas are just really really. Oh, yeah. I mean, going down there, I think the first couple times, you know, first of all, like little gal from the Midwest and then coming to Northeast. And I mean, Northeast has its areas, but there's nothing like South Dallas. And then just going down there and really like taking in like what it is. And I mean, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So you went from disruption. Did you go to the gang unit? from disruption yes okay can you describe that describe the culture of the get we've we've had chief foy on uh shout out jeremy i know you're gonna be listening um <laughs> we've had darian too we had darian mm-hmm. and i want to get your perspective in, in of what the gang unit was when you went there i mean the bulldogs i mean everybody everybody called on the gang unit to go get their bad guys um and you know i I got to reap the, reap the benefits of, of the hard work, you know, talk about Norm, the hard work that Norm did establishing the relationships with the detectives and the different in the different units and stuff. And so these were the people that, you know, if they needed to find Casper, right, somebody's street name, you know, they would come to us and they would say, hey, this is who we're looking for. And like the Bulldogs, we'd be on it. Um, and it was, it was great because, I mean, we each got our own – you know, I worked with Darian, and sometimes I got to jump in with Foy and, you know, John Puente. But we each were assigned areas. And so, I mean, the best thing about the gang unit, and, you know, you and I, Misty, always talked about this, is, you know, you know I'd be like, oh, you're, you know, you're like the elite. And Misty's like, no. I mean, and the only good thing about, about the gang unit was, like, you got to start a case from start to finish. Like, you got to do the initial offense report to the arrest report to kicking in the door and getting the, and getting the bad guy. And that was, like... Because oftentimes, you know, the officer writes a report and then they don't know what the detective does and they don't know when the person is, is getting arrested. And like, we got to do all of that and we got to go wherever. And the best thing was like, you actually got to cherry pick your cases. So you'd always have it. Like if you picked a case, you'd always have a good clearance rate. Did you have a mentor in that unit? I had, I had a few, but I mean, the one that like Norm Smith was ever, I mean, like he was bigger than life in the, in that unit. Um, it was 
he, I mean, six, eight, you walk in and, and, and Norm was there and it didn't, every day was a good day. I mean, I still remember like, and that's kind of like after Norm was killed, like the sadness of coming into the gang unit is he was always there before everybody else, right? He was doing his thing and, you know, I'd walk in and he'd stand up over the desk and, you know, his big blue eyes. And he's like, good morning, Tina. <laughs> <laughs> and that just like, that started the day off right, you know, cause I mean, even the crap that we had to deal with, and, you know, we always complained about the command staff, you know, which, I mean, I get it. People complain about us now, right? Um, But it was just, he made it better. Like, I still remember when, you know, when I first went to the gang unit, we all got to take our our squad cars home. Everybody was on call, right? And then gas got to be, what, four bucks. And so, oh, we have to halt it. Nobody's nobody's taken um, yeah. taking their cars home, and so it was like select, you know. And we're all like, "You can't do this to us. I mean, we're not going to be able to survive. You're taking money off of, you know, out of our wallets." And so we just kind of like Norm being probably the lead. Like, well, you know, we'll just go. We'll go eat lunch. We'll bring our lunch because we're going to save money. <laughs> Norm brought this freaking loaf of bread with lunch yeah. meat. You know, the rest of us are like, you know, the, the dinners that their wives, you know, cooked or, you know, the, the food I cooked and, and brought. And Norm's got his loaf of bread. And sometimes I, I lived in an apartment complex. And so we'd go up to the, the clubhouse and eat there because we didn't want to eat at headquarters because we were mad at, you know, our, mm-hmm. our bosses. But it was, I mean, who brings a loaf of bread freaking lunch meat, you know? A and, man that's that big. That, that's, that's who brings a loaf of bread. Someone that sounds but, very efficient. Yes. He, he was. White bread. Randy was white bread. <laughs> still, still efficient. Was yes. it bologna? Too? No, no, no. I mean, probably. I don't know what kind of lunch meat, you know. But I, and then, you know, always have, we'd always have to have our dessert because Norm, Norm loved, loved dessert. And I remember... <laughs> You know, in the summertime, they would change our schedule. You know, during during the school years, we'd work 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and then they'd really give it to us in the evening and change our hours all the time. You know, like the working, you know, 4 to midnight or, you know, 6 to 2. Like, how dare you do this? And But, again, Norm was just like, look, it'll be – so in the middle of the shift, you know, or whatever, we'd always have coffee talk with Normando, and you find a place where you could have coffee and dessert. And we'd just sit. It was just, therapy session. He settled everybody down. But it was – I mean, like yeah. – just, I mean, like you all know Norm. It was just like you know, he's like, "What are we gonna do? Coffee talk with Normando?" And it was always, it was about him, you know. And yeah. It was just like, but that's just like that that life that that he brought. Um, it just even when it was a crappy day, just just having Norm there. I mean, like let's be real, Norm ran the unit. And yeah. It wasn't a sergeant. It wasn't a lieutenant. It was Norm ran the unit. That that group was so respected. Yes. And oh, the the amount of police work true hardcore police work that you guys did was amazing and i want to go back to that um that unity that brotherhood and can you describe that with that group i i mean even even to this day those are those are my rider guys um i i love those guys like they're my brothers i mean through thick and thin it would it wouldn't matter i mean jeremy darian craig you know mario you know all those guys it's it's so it's a it the bond is so tight i don't i don't know that it could be broken what do you feel like forged that bond the ultimate forge was obviously the the death of norm but just in running and, and doing the things that that we did and just getting like we every day you trusted an individual with your life you know because we weren't going after you know a criminal trespass war or anything like that we were going after the the worst of the worst right the folks that committed the aggravated robberies the assaults the murders i mean 
and we had to trust each and every one to do what they needed to do, you know, and know that when, you know, the shit hit the fan that we were all there together. And we'd all, I mean, we'd been in foot chases, we'd have been in fights, you know, all that stuff and those things. And then when you come out at the end and you get to have fun in, you know, in doing so, I mean, there was, there was one time, I won't say the suspect's name because I don't really know the, the rules of, you know, <laughs> but we were looking for this guy for, for months and months and, and not, not the, the guy that, that ultimately that, that scene that where Norm lost his life, but we're looking for somebody else and just running and gunning. And we finally got, we finally got done. We all get together and we make him make the guy stay in the picture too. And we're all like, <laughs> you know, and the guy was even smiling, but like even the folks that we were after knew we were after them. And then when we finally caught them, you know, cat and mouse game, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Mm-hmm. And even them like participating in, you know, what our brotherhood was uh, that, I mean, like, how often do you get that? Like, oh, yeah, 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 Russian, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the true, true, like, especially gangbangers, they understand their role and they understand our mm-hmm. role, right? It, and it is a cat and mouse game and it's, it's win or lose, right? Right. And I respected the, I respected the ones that I encountered that you could fist bump on another day after you arrested them. You, you didn't catch them that day, but you may catch them later on down the road. But they understand, they understood they had to be lucky basically 24 seven. Mm-hmm. Right. We just had to get it lucky a couple of times. Oh yeah. You know? I mean like just, and I think everybody looked up to, to Norm, like the relationships that, that Norm had. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I think somebody said it before. I don't remember who, who said it before, but I mean, Norm was doing community policing when community Darian. policing wasn't sure. cool. Yeah. Right. Like he was doing it. Cause I still remember, and I want to say it was Foy. So we're looking, for, we're looking for this guy and, uh, felony warrant. I can't remember what it was. And, you know, Norm already has these this, these relationships with people, whether they're wanted or not. I mean, they're bad folks, so he's established that. But, you know, he still goes out and talks to him. And there was one guy that we were getting ready to pick him up, but he had a bigger fish. Um, and, you know, he was whatever deal he made with, with Norm, um, Norm was going to let him walk, and he was going to come back the next day and turn himself in. But he gave us a name, but he just wanted to tie ins with his baby mama yeah. and, and things like that. And I mean, we were still pretty young and we were beside ourselves. I mean, like, how in the world can you let this guy go? And I was like, there's no way this guy, sure, shit, the guy comes back the next day and gets hold of Norm and we got two, you know, and like seeing that, because I remember a time that, you know, I think me and Darian tried to do that, right? And we were in an area that we hadn't, and we hadn't established the relationships that, that Norm had, right? Not really understanding exactly the full context of, how norm built what he did right um and so we tried it one time and like hey yeah go ahead yeah it's your birthday call us tomorrow (laughs) nothing go back (laughs) yeah (laughs) hey you remember when you made that deal with us you know like in the in the wind so i mean like that's just i mean you look at him and that's i mean you had gangbangers that went to his funeral yes yeah well i had had, after that happened um and we're going to talk about uh January 6th here in a minute. But after that happened, I remember out in South Dallas, I would have people come up to our little team basically saying, Hey, sorry about big Russian, you know, mm-hmm. cause they, they all knew him too. Cause mm-hmm. that, you know, and that was, that is some of the, the greatest honor when yeah. you can get a true criminal, a true gangbanger and a bad guy to respect you and, and recognize the loss. Uh, right. Big, big Russian general, uh, soprano. Or the, yeah. And we called him the general because, like, again, he just he ran it. <laughs> well, he was the face of that unit. Yeah. I, I mean, he was he was the guy over there, and that's why I, 
you know, you're the third person uh, commando was in the gang unit at that time. I wanted to keep his memory alive, yeah. and I wanted everybody listening across the state and people out of the country to listen and understand what Norm Smith meant to the gang unit. Yeah. Do you guys remember the Grand Avenue Apartments? Yes. Oh, yeah. So that was this is where I think uh, Norm got his name, uh, the general. So we were we were looking for a bad guy. And it ends up like we're going through. He ends up, I guess, busting through a ceiling. So they're doing all that chasing. And Norm is basically, and he's in the parking lot. Go that way. Go that way. Directing. Telling us, you know, directing all of us to go wherever. And, you know, and I mean, Regina would be mad if we let him run or anything like that. You know, so he's just there telling us, telling us where to go and what to do. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're still high-fiving Norm. Like, yeah, man, we got him. He didn't do anything. <laughs> He set you up for success. He did. He did. I mean, well, I think you mentioned we, community policing, and he was a large character, but he had a also a huge heart. Yes, and treated people with such kindness that um, I think that really molded you guys into. You've been on a lot of teams, right? Yes. So, what made this team different? Norm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. His leadership and his kindness mm-hmm. mixed with incredible policing. I'm going to take you to January 6th. All the listeners have heard about this. Um, Foy gave his perspective of what he saw, and Darian wasn't there that day, but he he uh, he, he spoke on the loss and, and what it did to that, that unit moving forward. Can you talk about it? I'll try. I okay. Yeah, you know, that's probably the first time I really talked about it. Um, so that uh, that day we came in early to, to run our warrants, um, 6 a.m. and so we did our thing and I think before we get into the shooting like the one of the things that I remember so Norm always sat by me when we went and ate because he always so he could have my food <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, this, yeah this day was no different we had uh, half of us met at um, Barbex do you remember Barbex so we met at we met at Barbex and we're all sitting there um, at this table and like Norm is unique. I mean, like, we all would sit and talk about, like, Hollywood movies. Norm didn't watch Hollywood movies. Like, it was documentaries and foreign films and and things like that. Um, And I remember sitting next to him, and Norm loved his dog like I love, like, I love my dogs. And I was telling him, I was like, you got to watch that movie, Marley and Me. And he's like, I don't watch shows like that. And I was like, Norm, it's so good. You love, you love Boudreaux, you know, like, so good. You have to watch it. And we kept going and going. He's like, fine, Tina, fine. You know, get me, let me have your eggs or whatever, and then I'll watch it, you know. So we made our we made our little Good trade-off. It, I mean, it, it worked. And so, you know, like that, I felt victorious. Like, I won one over on Norm. He's actually going to watch, you know, this horrific Hollywood film, right? Um, and so the day the day uh, moved on, and we came back. We came back in at, I think we did a 12-hour shift, so we worked 6 a.m. to 6 p. Um, and I remember... I mean, I was half undressed, you know, and I remember I could hear Norm over there talking about, like, getting a team together to go to go down to uh, Channel 7. And, you know, Foy coming back, and, you know, we were in the, the back the back row, the, the trailer, right, the trailer trash. Uh, we were back there, and I remember Foy coming, and I was like, no, I, I want to go home. I'm tired. And I, the way I remember it was like, I feel like I was the last one, and maybe we, we make it our own thing, right? And I just remember Foy, come on, Tina, come on. And, you know, come on, don't be a wuss, you know, and like, get, you know, getting that, you know, and finally, like, 
fine, whatever, you know, I'll put my shit back on and, and we'll go. And so like part of that, you know, there's, I guess there's that, if I would have said no. No. So, you know, I agreed, got my stuff on and, and we went, we went down there to, uh, Wadsworth and, and I still remember, you know, we piled in our cars and even up to, up to a certain point, you know, just being, you know, jovial and kind of just the guy we were looking for, we've been, we've been looking for, um, and I refuse to say his name, even though he's not the one um, right. that ultimately took Norm's life. I mean, they're not worth, um, the breath I speak or use, um, but, you know, up to the point where, you know, like, oh, he's not going to be here. This going to be this. going to be another one here. You know, just like, you know, jabbing at Norm because um, we've been jabbing for a while. You know, he got away from us a while ago. <laughs> Probably my fault on that one, too. <laughs> but um, so get, getting up there and I remember getting to um, get to the apartment and we're trying to figure out, you know, because we'd been at this apartment before because I think that's the last time he ran from us was at the same apartment, I believe. I think just a different, different corner. And so kind of going there and, you know, and I know both boys have spoken on this and, uh, I think Derry mentioned it too, is Norm never was the front person, never was the lead, like never. Um, and for, for some reason he felt the need to take, take the lead and, I remember he put me, John and, and Foy, uh, on the side. I think the window was boarded up. I was on the side. The window was boarded up. And so, you know, at that point, you're just, okay. And then you can hear those guys going to going to the door. And then you hear the shots ring out. And, and like, you know, and you're not necessarily expecting that. And so I remember, I think it was Foy that said, because I was the closest, um, sent me over there, and I remember going around the corner, and I just remember blood, um, and you know, in, in your mind, like for me, you know, you always, you always work at like if, if something happens, you know, you don't want your voice to, you know, go ten octaves and you know, scream like a girl, right? That's what we all say. Um, and I remember coming back, and I don't even know if I got anything out outside of gibberish um but i remember uh craig had to come back because i think the guy shot again so norm's norm, now norm's just um sitting uh or laying in the the breezeway and so get a moment where i don't know if mario lays down around or something so we're able to to pull him and it took i mean initially i think craig and maybe maybe foy started pulling him and then it took all four of us to pull him out and and drag him. I mean, Norm was 280. So if we just think about the dead weight, you're looking at at over over 300 pounds, right? Just trying to pull. And that's so why I remember we come back around and uh, I don't know at what point. I mean, those guys go back and I'm with I'm with Norm, and then you know the paramedics come, and I'm I I really am I'm beside myself. I I just can't believe. I mean, like. You know, the guys have a different perspective, but, like, for me, Norm was, I mean, Norm was infallible. Nothing, Norm was, like, my Superman, right? Nothing was going to, you know, take him down. Him and Regina, I mean, we're going to, 
you know, buy a house in another country. I mean, there was there was life after DPD for for Norm, you know, because he talked about it. Um, and to see, like, I mean, he was dead. There was, I mean, he was dead. And so when the paramedics came, I remember I had to, I had to go. Everybody was still the scene was still being being held with everybody else, and I ended up having to go to um, Baylor. Some young officer took me, and I mean, I am bawling. And I called Darian, and Darian was just getting back from, I believe, Mexico, because his grandfather had passed away. And I don't even know if Darian can understand what I was saying. Um, and I remember being at the at the hospital just waiting and then everybody else started everybody else started coming in and it wasn't and even though it was everybody else in the gang unit it wasn't wasn't my guys there and so I felt like they didn't get to see and I'm not taking anything away from them. they did they didn't get to see what just happened and everybody that this just happened with is still there and I am like by myself and people are wanting to know what happened and I can't get the words out and I remember I remember Darian walking through walking through and I mean I fell I fell apart you know like even more so when, when he came in but like because he was part of that group even though he wasn't there it was that connection that brotherhood a special brotherhood like you know everybody in the gang unit had that brotherhood but our little our little uh you know group was unbreakable and I remember Darian had to Darian had to bring me back to the to the scene and I think what was kind of shitty about it and I guess it's how scenes go but like trying to keep us all separate you know and you know not I'm you know trying to look over at Foy to see how Foy's behaving you know as Mario and like oh my gosh I'm like you know you could see that I'm just bawling and I'm like am I not supposed to be crying oh my gosh and then having to go through like the formality of walking through stuff and I'm like I don't have time for this I'm like I just really want to go home and lay on the floor and I still remember going back to headquarters and they separate us all again. And like at that time, I mean, I I needed I needed those guys, you know. And then writing my letter, and then and then going home. And I, you know, and at, I mean, I didn't have, you know, my family was up in Iowa. I didn't really have what maybe everybody else got to go home to, you know. I had somebody in my life, but it wasn't it wasn't really it wasn't what I needed at that time. Um, and so. That was, that was really hard, you know. And then why, you know, you know, I wanted to go back to work and just hang out with those guys. But going back to work and, you know, looking at everybody and, you know, people check on you for the first couple of days. And then, you know, it's not, it's not, it's their tragedy, but it's not their their tragedy, right? Like, your life gets to go on and your life gets to go on, and nothing wrong with that because that's how life works. But like my life did not go on. Um, and not being in a position where we we talk about stuff right we don't we don't talk about it's okay to you know break down and and cry and we don't talk about it's okay to pick up the phone and say joe i'm not doing well you know we have to we all pretended you know and then you go to our you know our our normal doctors and you know know if you feel this way or this way just give us a call and i'm like you know that was the middle finger for those that that couldn't see it um but it's it was just such a formality, and you're lost on your island. And we're trying to change that. I mean, really, that's and, and that that's 2009, and it's gotten better, but it's still not where it should be. With 
helping each other and, and to heal from something like this. Yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm glad the department's doing it because I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, depends on how people are, if they're willing to step up, but I, I was lost. I was in, and it actually took Rolo, um, Rolo, you know, tapped me on the shoulder one day. He said, Miha, Miha. He's like, I went, I went to Dottie Claggett. Yep. And, and I only went once to Dottie, but like that, that like broke it open for me. Cause honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't functioning. I wasn't doing Tina. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't even get on my bike and ride. Um, I couldn't try to work out and I couldn't, it was just like, again, at that point I felt like my life ended, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't my life. Right. And Norm's life was ended, but like, I felt like at that time in my life, he was the, he was the center of what that unit was. And then, you know, you come back to work and there's not somebody standing over that desk saying, good morning, Tina, you know, or just the little, little things that we had that came from him, you know, and then the expectation was what a week later, go run some warrants. And I don't even, I mean, I remember doing it. I remember, I remember I could just, you know, we're running, we're doing a, a warrant for Markalek and it's a, it's an Aryan Brotherhood warrant. And I, I mean, I'll say it. I was scared. I was scared because I didn't, we didn't get to talk about what, you know, what happened with Norm and, you know, like, and the realities, that's part of police work, right? I mean, at any time, any point, whether you're in a special unit, whether you're a patrol officer, whatever, right? Tragedy can, but we don't talk about how to deal with it and how it impacts you. And, you know, just to work through that process instead of like the, the fear, the, uh, the being all alone, the depression, all those sorts of things. Yeah, I've been racking my brain um, since Foy's episode. And, you know, Darian, we talked offline about it, too, about everybody was so surprised when Norm wanted to go first. He, it was Everything was so out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I, was, I, I was talking to Foy about that. I was like, you know, I wonder if it was because he, cause he kind of like it was his deal and kind of, all right, dragged everybody off the couch to go do one more that night. So he wanted to uh, take ownership and, and be the first up there. It's just it terrible fate, oh. and, and it just unfolded unfolded that way. After that, Foy talked about going out and running the first warrant. He felt he had to be the first first one at the door. You know, he had to get back in the saddle. How mm-hmm. did you cope? In in and as a unit, how did y- did y'all take care of each other? Where did you get your strength from? I mean, I, I honestly got my strength from the guys Mm -hmm. that's that's what i had at that time is you know the fellas i mean my they were hurting my my rider guys and you know foy foy had a had a you know a different perspective but but i also think like different people had different different types of support afterwards you know i you know i didn't have any anybody outside of our group reaching out you know and talking me through it i don't know if you know i think some of those guys did and so you know, Foy jumps in and, you know, now he's going to be, you know, take command. And I'm, I'm still like, I don't want any of us to go. Right. I'm like, well, I don't want, I mean, fuck, I don't want Foy to die. I don't want Darian to die. I don't want, you know, and so I had that to work through. Um, and so that was, that was my thorn. You know, it wasn't <laughs> be the first, first, it was just like, we need to like, we need to get our minds right. Cause I didn't, I still didn't feel like our minds were right to really get out there and, and, and do what we're doing. And I mean, I mean, I'm sure they weren't right. I mean, it's how could they be? Yeah. And I know we just had to pick up and pretend everything was, was norm, but like my personality, a lot of you guys know, like 
I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do that, you know, and there was just that, I mean, and that's why you and I talk all the time and, and you've heard, I'm like, that my mental health at that time, and who knows the impact that that's had now, but was not right. And if your mental health is not right, you cannot do the function 110% that you need to do. And the things that we do, I think require that absolutely that mental that mental focus and that that 110 percent and if you're waffling in in this you know cloud of i don't knows and you're not solid in where you where you go i think that's i think that's difficult yeah, that mental acuity has to be there mm-hmm. if not you can you can get yourself killed or hurt or somebody else mm-hmm. A- after this incident um how long did you stay in the gang unit after that uh till 2012 okay um, and then I promoted in 2012 to a sergeant. And then that's when you, when you left the unit. Yes, okay. sir. So y'all moving forward after that incident, you stayed three more years. It was different, right? Everything was different. And I know, I know new training and, and, and policies came out after that. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Sergeant Mobley, because mm-hmm. uh, I was in the CRT at the time, and we, we had to go yeah. through all those, uh, the, the new warrant training, basically. Um, how did that unit, how did that unit function after after losing that, that leader? I mean, we still had a mission, mm-hmm. you know, and we still had to go out there, but it it wasn't the same, you know, because there wasn't, people tried to step in and, and fill Norm's role, and at the end of the day, like sometimes you just you can't fill that hole completely. There's always going to be uh, the emptiness of what of what Norm was, you know, you, out there. And I mean, and Norm had these relationships in on Channel Three that nobody can replicate. I mean, in, I'll argue with anybody. Like you cannot replicate what he had because the way he did it. Um, I mean, like I said, him himself he was larger than life. I mean even though he was out there trying to catch a, there was still, you know, that mutual respect and, and it's just a different world. And I just don't think that he took the time and he went beyond what, what we would say our, our normal function, our mission, our duty was in the gang unit to really get to know these people. Yeah. Um, right, wrong, and different. Um, and that, that was hard. I mean, again, we still did our mission. We still had the relationships with the detectives and stuff, but it was just, it just wasn't the same. There was no, you know, coffee talks with, with Norm and, just the things that that we did it was we still had fun you know but it was a void that i personally i just didn't the gang unit wasn't the same and then like people just started leaving you know foy promoted out shortly you know after darian went to you know went to swat um andy caceres left um and it just people just started leaving and so it was a unique brotherhood i mean i think everybody in units like formed those but like it was just unique and I don't know how else to explain it except I just don't know that anybody could replicate what like we had yeah from the outside looking in it was very unique oh know? absolutely and highly respected oh they were the cream of the crop I mean gang unit was that they, they were the top they were up there in in the level in the same breaths as SWAT you know that they, sure. they were they they were the top when it comes to specialized units so you promote uh, where did you go as a, as a brand new sergeant I went back to Northeast. Okay. I went back to Northeast, and then um, I stayed there. I think it was probably like six or seven months, and then uh, I think you had talked to me about it, but then I, uh, Chief Elsie had, you know, pulled me over for, for Metro, which was, mm-hmm. you know, my mind was going to be like the, the disruption, and no, Randy, it was not like disruption. Didn't even, <laughs> didn't even, hurt. yeah, it didn't even mirror what, what disruption was. But from there, I went to um, Metro and 
I can't remember how long I was in Metro, and then uh, Chief Brown pulled me to uh, that. They brought those sergeants over for reality-based training, and so yes. then I went over there. Well, that was important training. That was a great training. That was uh, that was starting up, and and I, that helped a lot of folks. I I, uh, I did that training for a bit uh, as one of the instructors, and I loved it. And I thought it was really really good training and really needed for that time, especially. Um, yeah, but I didn't. I mean. I, I wasn't a willing participant. Mm-hmm. Um, I still felt like, you know, I wanted to be out there with, with individuals, right. you know, and, you know, just, I don't know, just be there, be, be supportive, teach them what I, you know, what I thought I had to teach. And, you know, like there's something that I took from the gang, you know, that I even felt like as a sergeant, I could, you know, pass on to the, the younger officers. I mean, you could still, you didn't have to be afraid to, you know, chase dope, even, you know, no matter what other people said, there was a way to get out there and, you know, mingle, mingle with, you know, the, the citizens in the, in the community that you're working. And so getting pulled to the Academy was, I mean, you, you were out there, so it was fun having Misty out there, but it wasn't really like my ideal job. I mean, a year there, I mean, I, I took some things out of it, but I still liked being out on the street because I still felt like as a young sergeant that I could have an impact and I wanted to have an impact. Yeah. As a, as a sergeant, that's the first form of supervisor role, but you can be a, you can be a leader without being a supervisor. Right. And you, oh, agreed. and, you, I mean, and you've, you've, everybody had, in this room, I, right. mean, I mean, it doesn't, it's not gold. It's the person you are and, and you know, the people and how they, they look at you and you know, if, if they want to follow you, it doesn't take, it doesn't take a gold badge or, you know, gold chevrons or whatever. It's, it's the person, it's the heart. I think it's the ty- the style of leadership that, that you, you emulate. Right. Well, the super sergeant is the first level of supervisor role. And, and that, that comes with a lot of headaches of dealing, having people under you in a different mm-hmm. role. You're not Tina from the gang unit anymore. You're Sergeant, Sergeant Schultz. Yeah. Right? That was the hardest thing yeah. uh, to really, to get over, you know, cause you know, the Tina mm-hmm. kicked indoors without asking the questions. Right. And this one was now that you're, you have more people, you're, you're, it's not just Tina I'm responsible for now. It's Tina, Joe, Randy, Misty, and right. whomever else. And so now the decisions you're making now impact more than just you. And there are some people that test test that. They oh, test yeah. they test yeah. the uh, the supervisor role. Oh, you, yeah. ha- you have yeah. to change. You have to evolve. So with all the tragedy and all the the grunt work that you did, right in the gang unit, you saw you've seen both sides. There's a lot of people that have promoted that have not. They haven't done that type of work. You know. Have you incorporated your style of leadership to where you're at now? Now you're a deputy chief. How has it evolved in all the all that you have seen? Well, I, I think a lot of it is it's it really is like the servant leadership, you know, and accountability and the gang unit. I mean, we we were two hundred percent, you know, and now getting back and you know. I don't, I cannot stand lazy people. I mean, it's, I always say I'm the easiest person to, to work for, you know, know the rules and, and get out there and work and do the best that you can and be the best that you can be. Right. I mean, that's, that's my mantra. Be the best that you can be. It's not, Oh, I'm just going to take two calls and and be done. And so just, I mean, that was Norm, right? Norm was out there in the, in the community. Norm was out there serving. And so I take kind of what, what Norm, that informal leader was in, in, take it in your you know it's harder work at this at this rank because you you have so many people you're serving and it's not people I'm working with these individuals but I have to do more for for my troops or my majors or my lieutenants and 
and that trickle down effect. And I think that's kind of what I what I take from that is really really being a servant. And sometimes it's difficult, you know, as a as a deputy chief to get out there and and answer calls or, or things like that. And so when you want to say you're gonna you're gonna lead, but hopefully the things that I've done. You know, people realize that I'm just not somebody that's talking, you know, from here and asking people to do things that I, in fact, wouldn't do my myself. But I do think the biggest thing is that that servant leadership. Running with Norm and uh, and Darian and, and Foyd, did you ever think you would have a star on your collar? <laughs> no. And Foy, too. <laughs> I mean, hell, Foy can get promoted anyway. I mean, for, Foy more so than me. No, I, I mean, it was... It really was, I thought, gang unit for life. Yeah. I mean, and if Norm was still here, that might have been the way the way it played out. I mean, because it was, I mean, I keep saying it, but it was, I mean, just such an amazing unit at that time and such an amazing camaraderie that I've made friendships for a lifetime. And, I mean, Foy could do something, you know, stupid, and I would, I would still, you know, love him to death and it wouldn't change my love for him. Yeah, I told Foy that I think Garcia just drew a name out of a hat. His, <laughs> yeah. His... yeah. Uh, shake the hat. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, really? Yeah. Richard Foy? <laughs> All right, here we go. No, he's he's definitely amazing, and I, mm-hmm. I think that he does. I mean, watching him, you know, even though he's been on longer than me, I'm like, I'm super proud of him. I'm proud of what he does. I'm proud of his passion. Um, and I hope he's going to hear that, and he's gonna his head's going to get big. I'm but... editing that. I'm taking that oh, out. Don't please, worry. Yeah, please do. Yeah. Foy, you suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So when you promote, there's naysayers. So what would your response be if somebody, if you overheard someone saying, yeah, Chief Schultz, she drank the Kool-Aid? Oh, I, I hear that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just laugh because, I mean, like, as, as you move up there, just it's a, it's a different, you know, viewpoint. Here as a, as a PO, your PO, senior corporal, your, your view is, is here. And then we jump to 180 and 180 and then 360. And so you just, you have a, you have a different, a different view and you have to have a different approach. And there are some things like, you know, back then you didn't think about the administrative stuff or like what this does to, to the community. And, and there are some things that you're like, eh, I don't know, but you, you chose this rank. So you have to push, push the, the mission. And so I laugh when people say that, I'm just like, I mean, <laughs> okay, I mean, you promote and then tell me that you're just going to go ahead and, you know, maintain what, what it is that you're doing. Because you have to change to a certain degree when you start moving up. And you have to, you know, navigate the waters, you know, to – you still have to continue to build up the, the rank and file because they're the ones that, that matter, right? But there's – you know, you have to – you also have somebody that you have to report to and you have a community that you have to report to. So it is different. And I've heard people like, oh, you've changed. I'm like – yeah, I mean, that, that happens, you know, and hopefully it hasn't been completely negative. I mean, again, there'll be people that, you know, will have their things to say, but I don't really care. Consider the source. Right. <laughs> well, those things, I think it was people at the bottom, they expect you to be the same way. You change with the rank because you have more responsibilities, and I think that sometimes that gets lost by troops. They don't realize right. you got to be. Because one of the things I think these sergeants that become sergeants and they're still wanting to be friends mm-hmm. – you know, you got to be a supervisor and make sure these guys, yeah. your your troops, stay on task. And I think that's a some people have a hard time but it, realizing yeah. or looking at the big picture of things. But a lot of it is rank, age, life experiences, yeah. critical yeah. incidents. You know, personal, professional. There's all sorts of things that you know you encompass and you change who you are. I mean, I 
I look at my career versus 1997 to where I sit now, I mean, before it was like, you know, everybody goes to jail. Everybody goes to jail. I don't, you know, there's really no empathy in, in, in your approach. And, you know, as you move forward, you know, empathy is an important piece of policing. You know, we talk about bridging the gap, you mm-hmm. know, like that's important because you have to be like, I don't walk in these people's shoes. They've never walked in my shoes, but it doesn't mean that there can't be, you know, a mutual respect for each other. And so, and then again, you look at critical incidents and depending on who those people are in your life, how you take it, how you evolve, how you adjust, and you, you do become different. And those that don't change throughout their career, I mean, kind of shame on you. <laughs> Well, yeah. everybody changes. I mean, right. even you have e- to. even I remember when I first got to Southeast, uh, it, he was actually being promoted as we were getting on as uh, Sergeant Cato. And, oh, yeah. when, you know, he changed. He was he was a second command here in Dallas uh, mm-hmm. for years. You have to change when the higher you go. You have to. You're making decisions that affect more than just a watch or just a unit. Oh, right? absolutely. I mean, you and I, Randy, <laughs> I mean, Cato was our lieutenant over no. disruption and our marching orders then would have never been marching orders that he gave us as a, you know, executive assistant chief. Yeah. Right. And, but that's the nature of the beast and, and, and what we do when we promote and the things that we need to do and the way the mission is voiced. How, how do you feel like Norm's incident made you a better leader? You don't, don't rush. Um, and just really, you know, take the time. I mean, like, I still, I mean, and I think maybe just kind of taking that, like, did we have to go that night? You know, and he, and he used to always say, and I don't know if Foy said this, but like, we, we have tomorrow, right? We have tomorrow. Um, and for whatever reason that, that day, that day wasn't, you know, we have tomorrow. And so that, that perspective changed, but, you know, I guess I take out of it, my leadership is like, I would want Norm to be proud of me. Um, and Carolyn always tells me, which is Norm's mom, um, you know, that, that she hears from Norm and he says that he's proud. And so, so I take that. But my biggest thing is, you know, he'd always heckle with the command staff and, you know, say the things that, that he would, that he would, you know, say, but I would hope that he's proud of what I've done and who I become and the type of leader that I am. I'm sure he is. How could he not be? He would have told me I was stupid. (laughs) Yeah. I, re- I remember when I, uh, I think, you know. He would have had a k- pitcher of Kool-Aid and set it on your desk. <laughs> he would have probably made me drink and then, you know, not that he would have been on social media, but I still remember, like, I did the, the bike ride the following year, that the Police Unity Tour ride, and it was a 300-mile ride. And you just think about Norm, and, you know, there was two, I think it was a, was it 60, 100, 100, and then a 40-mile ride. And um, so, the second or third day, I mean, you're getting into it, and let's, I mean, everything's sore, right? And everybody's passing passing buttercream, and I'm doing this ride with, you know, buttercream to put in your crotch for those that don't know what I'm talking about, uh, just to, you know, keep it. Keep it. I have some on now. So yeah, okay, because you're tight. Thank you. But when I'm riding, I'm just like, I mean, these horrific hills, and I'm like, Norm would tell me I'm the biggest bleeping idiot ever. I'm like, why am I doing this? And Monica Almeida, who was doing the ride for me, she's like, you're doing this for Norm. He'd be so proud of you. I'm like, no, he wouldn't. So to say, is would he be proud of <laughs> He would not be. He'd be like, you're stupid. Let's go eat some cake is what he would have said. Let's, you know, eat 300 pieces of cake throughout the year, and we'll call it, we'll call it good instead of riding 300 miles. And um, so I say that to be like, I don't know if he, he would say he's proud. But, like, at the end of the day, like, I 
I do think about that. Um, you know, I wear my memorial bracelet every day. I, I go out to the cemetery every year. All right, I want to talk about another incident where your body was broken again. This <laughs> recently, April 19th, 2020. You were involved in another accident. Can you describe this? Yeah, actually, I can. I'll be, I'll be cautious because I don't want to. I don't want to speak ill of a another agency. Okay. Um, but it was right around COVID and shelter in place. Um, and so you know that at that time everybody's trying to find the Clorox and trying to find the Lysol and trying to find. So um, it's like ten thirty, eleven o'clock. So I'm trying to hit these places and I get to Target and I found I find you know some bleach. I'm excited about that. I go to Trader Joe's. And I remember this and so. And that day is actually, um, my dad was actually preaching. And so I remember sitting, I remember sitting in the Trader Joe's parking lot so I could listen to the rest of my, my dad's sermon before, before I left. Um, and there was about 15 minutes left. And so after that, you know, they do, dad does, uh, the, the music too. And so listening to that on the, on the way home. So I'm coming up to Mockingbird in Inwood, uh, got the green light. And next thing you know, I'm upside down in my in my truck. Uh, I hear sirens. My uh, my seatbelt's locked, um, and I'm just yelling like, "Get me the fuck out of this!" You know, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, out of this truck. Uh, and the officer uh, comes around and has to cut you know cut the seatbelt. Um, and they were they were running code three, but running code three, you know, reckless. And so, but like I said, I, won't, I try not to get into that. Um, but I remember trying to um, hop up, and I remember Mandy coming to the scene, and she kind of got mad at me because I'm trying to, like, you know, act like I'm running the scene, which I'm I'm not. You know, I'm wanting DPD to get there. I can't find any of my phones. Um, and I actually remember somehow Chief Hall, I think, somehow got Mandy's number and ended up, you know, talking to me because I was just going to go home. I mean, my hip hurt a little bit, but I was just like, Ugh. I just want to get home. I mean, like, my body hurts. Um, and she said, no, you need to get to the hospital. And so, again, COVID, I go to the hospital, and, like, I'm all by myself. And I'm still thinking, gosh, my hip hurts. But I was walking around, so, I mean, probably probably just, you know, even though, you know, I got hit at, you know, pretty pretty decent speed. I mean, I think at the end of calculation, I got hit at 56 or 57 miles an hour. Um I still think, you know, I was okay. And then I remember I had to go in for an x-ray and then they must've seen something and then they sent me to something else. And I remember the, the nurse tells me that it looked like on the x-ray, the CAT scan that they're part of my, my neck is, is broke again. Um, so it's not the, it's not the, it wasn't the, I guess the, the vertebrae itself is like those round nodules mm-hmm. that were your arteries and your veins go through. Um, and so I don't have my phones. I, I can't call, I can't call Mandy. I can't call my parents. I can't call anybody. And so I'm sitting in this hospital bed with the possibility of, again, having, having another broken neck. And, you know, you go back to your old experience of like, what does this mean? Like, how's this going to impact me? And I think another five or six hours, I finally, I finally was released and came home with another big freaking you know brace and i had to follow up i was out of work for for two months i mean and i begged the doctor to come back because during that time uh were the george floyd riots and i mean 
I, I watched I watched it on the internet and that that crushed me. That crushed me that the officers were out there dealing dealing with the the riots. It crushed me that I couldn't be a part of that team. Um, and I was just again in my mind. You know, I got lost in my mind and you know that that depression and sadness you know came in. But I, I actually it wasn't Dad this time. It was it was Mandy there that was like you know my support and being positive and you know we'll get through this and. And those kinds of things. You had some uh, other people reach out to you from your blue family uh, in support. Could you can you talk about them? I, one specifically is everybody knows Paul Younger. Um, Paul Younger actually sent me sent me a card. Um, you know, and I, I get this thing in the mail, and it was a handwritten card. I mean, and for and honestly, I'm I'm thinking, you know out of sight, out of mind, right? Nobody, I mean, everybody's dealing with this stuff. Everybody, everybody has forgotten about me again. Oh, woe is me. And again, the tragedy happened to me, nobody else. Um, and so he, you know, by him saying that, that card and then, uh, Avery, Avery checked in with me a lot. Um, but he also knew that, you know, I had my mental, you know, part I had to, had to deal with and, and chief hall, you know, check in, uh, like once a week and that helped uh, I know some other people you know called or text initially and then you know people sent me uh cupcakes and, and cookies and, <laughs> and I was like that's the last thing I need is I'm laying on the laying on the yeah. couch and I can't work out I can't do anything and you know I'm eating these you know Kim Owen sends me like a dozen of these mini you know chocolate chip or not chocolate muffins and they're gluten-free so of course I could eat a whole yeah. dozen but stuff like that but I mean it was I mean, I had some really good people, and, and I'm probably missing missing a few, so I do apologize if they're listening. But it was probably that, you know, that you didn't feel all alone. And, and again, we go back to critical incidents. It's just nice to know somebody's thinking about you, you know, and that you're not all alone because sometimes we get into our own our own brains. And I think that's the hardest. I mean, our heart can be like, you know, get going, but it's our brain that has to actually get into the mindset of, you know, I'm going to fight through it. I'm going to forge through it. Just because I broke my neck again doesn't mean my world is is at the end. And again, I'm the maker of my own destiny. You know, and once I'm cleared, I got to get up off my button and get back and do the things that I can do to come back to, you know, somewhat full duty. Well, you you learn that mentality going back to 21 years old, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, it, years of 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 picking yourself back up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this time it wasn't dad though. So this time it was, it was other people and it was, it was my, my peers and, and my friends. Now I think you and Darian came over one day, uh, just to see and check in, you know, and it's, it's just like, you know, like, do you need anything? And of course at the end of the day, you know, yeah, I need a new neck, but. Right. <laughs> well, you, you picked yourself back up, right? I mean, after you, you had some help, but it was probably different from when you were 21 years old and I'll use a Batman McGinn's line. <laughs> Why do we fall? So we can learn to pick ourselves back right. up. Right. Um, when you found, how long did it take to get back to, back to the job? Uh, the doctor let me go back. I think after two months, um, on light duty, I didn't get released to full duty until probably the, Maybe close to the fall. I don't. I don't remember when it was, but I still remember. I mean, we still had protests and stuff going on. And that first day, I was back in uniform. I think they were having one. I wasn't even assigned to to be in the command post, but I walked my little butt down there, and I, mm-hmm. I just sat there until you know everybody everybody was gone. You know, and that. I mean, 
like I needed that because I just felt like I hadn't been there for everybody else, you know, and not, and everybody knew. So I don't think anybody was being critical of me not being there. But like, again, that was something that I had to do for, you know, for my, my mental fortitude mm-hmm. is to be part of it and to get in the, get back in the mix as much as you can as a, as a deputy chief. Well, the, uh, I'm glad you brought up about, you know, feeling forgotten, right. And, 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 feeling like people actually care and the department's coming up with a, you know, a new program you're involved in it. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a peer support mental health in uh, checkpoints. We're going to be reaching out and checking on people and you're going to be a part of that. Misty's uh, Misty and I are both uh, involved in, uh, in working on that. And that's, I think that's going to be a good thing. So people, and I've reached out to people and they've all of them positive feedback going, wow, the department should have been doing this a long time ago. And that's something what you're talking about. You just had people calling you up to say, checking on you. It's so important. It's so important. I mean, because, again, the human mind is a crazy thing. You know, we can get lost in our thing, but just to, just to know that Misty picked up the phone and just said, hey, how are you? You know, it, it brings you back and kind of helps you get centered to what to do what you need to do. Um, and I, th- I think it's long overdue. And so I think I think what, what the department is doing and doing these check-ins and whether people, you know, like it or not, it's just – to feel important, to feel like a part of a family, I think is is a key to you know longevity for our officers. Well, you just want you people like to feel like others give a shit, you know. Yeah, when we leave here, we got a bunch of people to call. <laughs> um, I want to ask you one last question. You've had a lot of tragedy, and you've learned a lot from this department. You learned a lot before you even got to this department. Uh, growing up. What is next for Chief Kara Zorel? <laughs> the cape, the cape, yeah. and, and the tights with Joe. <laughs> yeah. Well, they do tights together. You know, I don't know. I still have. You should have worn the day. Uh, how do you know I'm not wearing them? Hey. Underneath, okay. right? Well, <laughs> we'll check it out after we've done recording. No, I mean, I, I, I love this department. I love where the department's going. Um, I still have desire and amb- ambition to promote within the department. I don't. Like, I love the Dallas Police Department. I love the officers that are part of this department. And I want to be part of what the next five, seven years have. And after that, I mean, shoot, maybe I'll maybe I'll go rescue more dogs and have a couple more handicapped, you know, Miss Betty Spaghetti's out there running around in their wheelchairs. Betty Spaghetti is really cute. Yeah, it's my handicapped She dog. makes me smile. Have you seen her? She's got a wheelchair and everything. Aww. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's, she's a very cute. sweet little dog. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me smile. I see her post pics on her. Yeah, I don't do very. I'm not like a big social media. She has her own Instagram page, Miss um, Betty Spaghetti. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those that want to follow, right? Can I do that? Yep. <laughs> I, yeah, you probably. I don't, show. I don't, I don't post very well though. So I'm, I'm just. I'm a horrible, horrible mom. Just, I suck. <laughs> no, I, I, she's probably going to get a bunch more followers after this releases. Yeah, yeah <laughs> just random, random people are going to start she, following. I mean, her. but she actually like with with my last car crash. I mean. Then probably because she's handicapped, I can't really go too far. I mean, just she lay on the couch with me for the two months and just tucked up in my armpit. And, you know, when I got sad and got depressed, I mean, she just looked at me and, you know, I put her in the wheelchair and I'm like, how can I freaking, you know, whine about my life when this, this pup has, I mean, so I looked to an animal in that, like for inspiration on that and like, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Right. <laughs> well, lady helped you get through Norm's incident. Yeah. Yeah. That was my, my little pit bull, but she was, uh, yeah. She was solid for me, too. That was a good dog. Yes, she was. Yeah. I met Lady. She's very sweet. Yeah. I think you gave her fries. Didn't you feed her fries one time at Lee Harvey's? Somebody did. I think it was you. Fries in the temple? (laughs) (laughs) 
Chief, I can't thank you enough for sitting down. We, I've been trying to get you on here for the longest time, and finally you broke down and came in. <laughs> thank you for your leadership and friendship, and I can't wait to see what's in your future. I'll say this to you guys. Um, having me and having other people, are it's, it's great, but what you guys are doing is... I don't think words can express the impact you guys are, are having on people. I don't think you'll ever know the ripple effect. Um, I don't think you're going to know the ripple effect of the, the check-ins or the things that we're trying to move forward to. But the things that you guys are doing based on what you wanted to do, I mean, nobody told you guys to do this. You see the importance of it. And so at the end of the day, I thank you guys because I think you guys are really what's what's having an impact. It's not going to be what I say. It's not going to be what Jeremy or Darian say. It's, it's what you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah, I want to say thank you for preserving unity and brotherhood in our job and your example as your leadership. It's incredible. Thank you. Uh, I want to give a shout out to the dad daughters or daughter dads or whatever the hell we call us because your dad, I think, has done an awesome job. And I, like I said, I think he needs a good shout out to Mr. Schultz. He's, 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 doing, he's done a great he's job. He's. He's had a big impact on you, and I think it's been very great. Yeah, there's a, a cheesy, like, my dad's my hero, so there, I always remember that uh, Bette Midler song, you know, do you ever know they're my hero, the wind beneath mm-hmm. my wings? Yes. And, like, I hear that song, and this is my, my sappy, sappy side, but it makes me think of my dad, and at times it does get teary-eyed. You know, dad's getting old and stuff, but he's been my my center for, for my entire life. Girl dads. No, I, can I know they rock, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, mom. Thank you, Chief. That's right, Randy. That's right. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs., hey, Mister, I'll see this all the way through. sun and the moon I'll never give up on you Down when you're lonely I'll pull you up Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder Together we'll run up from the bottom Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey Mrs., hey mister, I'll see this all the way on you 
Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mr. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far for the gold and the blue, I'll never give up on you.